Welcome to Nightlight. Speaking of light, I remember back in the Christmas message a few weeks ago, I quoted or actually played for you a version of uh, Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring. I've, I've referred to that several times and I'm doing it again now. The words gripped me so powerfully when I first heard them in English. Yezu, joy of man's desiring, holy wisdom, love most bright, drawn by thee our souls aspiring, soar to uncreated light. I was so gripped by that phrase, soar to uncreated light, that actually it haunted me for weeks and still haunts me because i obviously keep bringing it up i keep wanting to find excuses to talk about it soaring towards uncreated light awakens in me every good thing there is you know there's there's a warning in throughout the new testament uh, it's a study that is worth your time. If 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 you don't do it on your own, maybe I should do it here and uh, provide it for you. A repeated strain of concern that runs through the New Testament. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Be prepared. The parable of the ten virgins. Uh, many, many other things that that strongly underscore for us that there is a grave danger in assuming that we have tomorrow. Whether it's having the assumption that we're going to be alive tomorrow or having the assumption that the world will be normal tomorrow or having the assumption that uh, whatever it is you're, you're not dealing with in your life there's plenty of time for you to eventually get around to it. <clears throat> I, there, there may not be a sadder phrase in all of the language of men than too late, too late. And so uh, this theme of staying awake can become really, really burdensome and uh, onerous and frightening if your only motivation is to stay awake for the purpose of staying awake. But the reason the, the, the ten virgins were staying awake is because they were looking for something. They were looking for someone. They were vigilant in anticipation for all of the good that would accompany the arrival of the bridegroom. And that's a whole other teaching in itself. But drawn by thee, our souls aspiring soar to uncreated light. If your heart is is being drawn up into the presence of the Lord, if that becomes an ever-increasing hunger, desire, motivation in you, the, the very virtue of that hunger, desire, motivation automatically negates its opposite, which is lethargy, passivity, slothfulness, uh, bending toward temptation, tolerating evil. All of that is set aside. So the, the vigilance of being awake gets motivated then not by some urgent fear of impending doom if you don't stay awake, but the, the glory of where you're headed and who you belong to. And that always brings me back to another set of lyrics that gripped me years ago from an, an old British hymn by Thomas Benny called Eternal Light. Now, drawn by thee our souls aspiring soar to uncreated light. But here's, here's, a, here's a problem. Soaring to uncreated light sounds wonderful 
But can we dwell in the presence of that uncreated light? We may be, we may be hungry for it on a certain level, but can we bear its presence? Somebody asked Dallas Willard a few years ago uh, about hell. And he said, you know, God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He wants anybody and everybody to to come to heaven, and they can if they can stand it. And he wasn't trying to be funny, and he actually said, I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek. I'm not trying to be cute. I mean it. A lot of people really hate God because they don't know him and don't want to know him. Sometimes people hate God because they've had a terrible misrepresentation of him given to them by Christians, and those people uh, are maybe closer to God than they might ever expect to find that they are because the God they hate is, is a God that God hates also. But then there's other people who just, they do. They hate God. They don't want to be near God. They don't want anything that God wants. They don't love anything God loves. They they love everything God hates and hate everything God's, God loves. For them to go to heaven would be uh, a torment that they can't comprehend. And so um, the fact is, all of us have aspects of our soul that are ungodly, unsanctified. Maybe they're in process of cleansing and correcting, but if exposed to the holiness of God now, those aspects of our soul would be in torment. Now, I'm not speaking here of salvation or or lostness. I'm just simply stating a fact that uh, even... You know, you may be born again. You may be covered in the blood. That means you you are protected from the wrath of God against evil. I'm not talking about that. That's that's secure in the grace of God. I'm talking about another work of grace that also is at work in that. They're not two separate things, actually. But I don't want to get into all the details of that. That uh, that of becoming who we were intended to be, that of becoming more and more and more uh, transformed into the image and likeness of our Savior. And so, with reference to soaring to uncreated light, here's another set of lyrics that speaks of that eternal light. But it, it, it underscores the problem that I'm trying to describe here. Eternal light eternal light, how pure the soul must be. When placed within thy searching sight, it shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. Oh, how shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated beam. How am I going to soar to uncreated light when I, who, whose mind is dim and whose sphere is dark, come before the ineffable and then on my naked spirit that uncreated beam shines on me? The next verse says, There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. These these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night may dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. The first time I heard that, I was moved in a different way than those previous lyrics because I was aware of both. I was aware of my heart longing for the uh, 
uncreated light. And I was aware of the part of me that would shrink back and hide in that eternal light, that that uncreated light, that in which light in which no lie can exist, no self comfort can sur- survive, no uh, no fudging of the facts, no manipulation of the conversation, no political correctness, no spin can even. Uh, enter into the presence of that light. Absolute, unabated, naked, blazing truth. John says in John chapter 1, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Not truth and grace. Grace and truth. If there was not grace to help you, you could not survive the revelation of the truth. I mean, we should we know that in our own human day-by-day experience. How many times do we recognize that we are using careful and polite language with a person uh, on a subject that we know if we were too clumsy or too overbearing or too pointed, we would do un limited damage to them we have to speak to them in a certain context we're not lying we're not accommodating lies but we're not just saying point blank uh, what if said point blank would be like shooting them in the face with a with a, a bullet you know I'm sure you can think of examples you know I mean Someone's son is is uh, in prison, and he we all know he's guilty, and we all know he's uh, uh, a rat. Well, you don't walk up to the grieving mother of that son and say, "Well, you know, we all know he's a guilty rat." You, that's just a that's a lousy example, but maybe it'll get the point across. Every day we we're careful with our language in order to avoid causing pain by. In, imposing truth in people's face that they're not prepared to bear. That's that's true on a human level. What do you think it's like to come into the presence of an absolute, perfect, holy, pure God and stand there in his presence with all of your self-deceptions that you've used to prop yourself up with stripped away. Well, God doesn't do that to you either. If we have mercy and grace and are careful for each other's hearts in those contexts, God is far, far, far more so careful. Uh, Father to the fatherless, a protector of the widow and the orphan, um, he who is holy, who created all things, Isaiah tells us, uh, is also uh, the one who comes down and holds him or her who has a broken spirit. So that last line of that hymn, Eternal Light, the sons of ignorance and night may dwell in the eternal light. How? Through the eternal love. Those, uh, those who prepare, the, 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 the grace of God prepares us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night may dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. Prepared for holiness above Uh, nothing in the world is more important for me and you right now, regardless of all the the issues we could go off chasing uh, and studying and talking about on the uh, cultural or, or, or political level. Lay them all aside. What matters the most in the world no matter whether the world is at rest or whether the world is in 
turmoil, and obviously you know the world is not at rest. The turmoil is increasing every every day, more and more in every area of life, every area. Everything is being shaken. Where do you go? What do you do? Where do you turn? You turn straight up toward the eternal light. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Daniel, which is a picture of the end time believer in the midst of Babylon. The word understanding or understand is used 25 times in the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel. 25 times. John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, the Son of God has come to give us an understanding heart. And Gabriel tells Daniel concerning the end of the age, he says, many will run to and fro and knowledge will be increased and people will be looking into all kinds of things trying to figure out the world. He says, the, the righteous will understand. The wicked will not understand, but the righteous will understand. And those who understand will turn many toward righteousness, and they who know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So the Holy Spirit comes to give us an understanding heart. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy is understanding. So obviously, the understanding that Daniel is talking about is not an apprehension of facts. It's not necessarily that godly people will have a greater understanding of economics, although they, they might, or that they may have a greater understanding of the dynamics of some cultural problem. Yeah, maybe they will, but that's not the kind of understanding this is talking about. It's talking about an, one who, who understands what is important and what is not, not just on an, an intellectual level, but has apprehended, comprehended, and apprehended a un, union with God that is life itself. Uh, Paul kind of makes reference to this in a, 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 a way you might not have ever noticed, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where he's, he's just finished talking to the Thessalonians about the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and assured them that their dead loved ones are not lost. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, they haven't disappeared uh, off the scene. They're, they're fully engaged in the redemptive process and will be restored to them at the resurrection. Then he says in the next statement, but you have no need that I write to you concerning these things because you are not of the night, you are not of the dark, but you are children of the day and children of the light. You already know what's how this is all going to happen. They don't know the details. They don't have a, a Schofield Bible chart. But he's saying it's your union with Christ and your your love relationship with him and your care for each other. If you have those things in place, all these other things take a far distant second place. And so I'm saying that to say, Let's beware, and I'm speaking to myself here, and you can overhear it if you want to. Take, take it to heart to whatever degree it, it applies to you. Let's beware that we are not focusing attention on economic issues, political issues, military issues, cultural issues, all the list of things we could go down the, the line. I'm not saying be irresponsible and ignore things that are your responsibility. But obviously, you know, 
Jesus said, when, when all these things began to happen, he said, there'll be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, the sea and the waves roaring. Men's hearts will fail them for fear from trying to look after all these things that are coming on the earth. He said, but for you, when you see these things happen, look up, lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. When you will be drawn upward into uncreated light and you will take on the nature of the holy and your body will put on immortality. Well, um, A.W. Tozer in one of his great sermons on the holiness of God told the story of Leonardo da Vinci when he was painting the picture of the Last Supper. And he, he got the whole thing painted and then he, he, he had everything done except one thing. He had not been able to paint the face of Jesus because he was afraid he would not be able to portray anything so important. He would not be able to portray it well. And, uh, and finally, in exasperation and hopelessness, he just painted it and, and just let it go because he said, you know, I am not capable of communicating what I feel in my heart needs to be communicated. That's how I feel right now. And every time I try to communicate about the holiness of God, I feel like Da Vinci must have felt. And I understand why Dr. Tozer used that example when he himself was about to try to speak on the holiness of God. I feel like I can't possibly approach the subject, and yet I am I'm desperate to communicate it, and I feel an urgency and a blessing on me to communicate it because God is inviting us in, sometimes in communicating the holiness of God, to try to get across the, 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 see, I run out of language that easy, to try to get across the awesomeness of this light, which Paul says, um, unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Now unto him that dwells in inapproachable light whom no man has seen nor can see. You start talking about this one who dwells in inapproachable light whom no man can see nor has seen, but he has been revealed to us in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God fully God and man, given to us. Why? To draw us toward the uncreated light, to invite us in, to ask us in, not to ask us only, but to, to, to woo us in. And yet, in order for us to enter that place, we first need an awakening of how terrifying this presence of the holy is. Language can't express it. So God resorts to association and suggestion. He can't say it outright because he would have to use words we don't understand. We would then take those words that he used and translate them down into our terms. We would take his his billions and, and put them down into onesies and twosies and threesies. In our in our limited capacity, we would have to dumb down the message. As uh, as Tozer said, his his pure blazing white we would make into dingy gray. And so when I try to talk about the holiness of God, I do it in hopes of drawing you closer into it. And yet, in order to give any kind of accurate statement about 
the holiness of God, it will actually sound like I'm trying to scare you away from it rather than invite you into it. Does that make any sense? And who am I to be the doorkeeper of the subject anyway? I'm telling you. There's just times in my life when I have gone beyond the, the normal everyday prayer life or the normal everyday study of Scripture or the normal everyday life with people I love. I, there's a place of encounter, of meeting Him. And in those places... I'm be I'm I'm not able to stand on my feet. I'm not able to speak. I understand why the priests in the dedication of Solomon's temple went to the floor and couldn't stand and had to crawl out because they couldn't bear the the heaviness, the the glory, the the the, the Hebrew word glory kavod has to do with heaviness, the weight that's why C.S. Lewis named his essay The Weight of Glory. This presence, this substance, this heaviness of the presence of God. And, and see all what I am crying out for today is that there is nothing in our current worship services and I, I know I'm painting with a broad brush, but I mean, if you if you can contact me and say, "Well, Clay, you know you're 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 wrong. We do have it at our church." Then let me know who you are and where you are. I'll come. I'll get a plane ticket. I'll I want to come now. I'm not saying this to put anybody down. I'm not trying to be superior and and snide and condescending. I'm just telling you. This has nothing to do with taste in worship styles. I've told y'all repeatedly, when it comes to music styles, I have a very Catholic taste. I, I like I like some of just about every kind of style there is. And I have a particular affinity for certain kinds of rock and roll because I grew up in the 60s and I have no choice. But that's got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about music styles. I'm not even talking about music, period. I'm talking about worship, corporate worship, in which those who gather are aware to whom they are gathering. And there is a corporate unity of heart that has been formed by proper teaching or by experience or both so that they understand who it is they are approaching when they, quote, come to church. And what is happening in the invisible world as they set themselves to, quote, worship God. There, there is, I don't know how long it's been, there was a time when it happened rare, rather often, and then it became more rare. And in the past few years, it has all but disappeared. But there was a time in the, in the life of the body of Christ when people were so moved by the, the presence of God in corporate worship services. I'm talking about church, Sunday morning church, Sunday evening church, whatever. That quite often the program was interrupted because the people were on their faces crying out or maybe not even able to speak a word because of the heaviness of that presence. I know that's happened in some places. I know of it from first-hand reports I've gotten from people who, who were there. I've got a friend who uh, arrived at his church service uh, uh, in the Liberty Fellowship of Churches. He arrived on normal time on Sunday morning and had 
started stepping over people as he got through the door and, and, and he got in the main auditorium and people were on the floor. It, it hadn't Church time hadn't even arrived yet. People had come at their normal service time and when they walked in the sanctuary, they, they fell on the floor. And uh, people just, the presence of God just was heavy in that place. And uh, it brings to mind what Jacob said in Genesis, uh, when he says, you are awesome in this place, O Lord. This, this place is the gate of heaven you know where he, where he saw the the ladder reach from heaven to earth and the angels going up and down on it in that in his dream and he woke up out of that dream and he said how frightening how awesome how terrible is this place all those words are used to, to translate that hebrew word how terrible is this place how awesome is this place we we are people who call awesome uh we take that word and, and use it to apply to some stupid automobile uh, we say terrible means something we don't didn't enjoy or were disappointed by. Oh, don't go to that restaurant. That service is terrible, we say. Oh, how was the weather? Oh, the weather was terrible. Terrible is a word that's used several times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Where, for instance, Nehemiah chapter 4, where Nehemiah is facing tremendous political and demonic pressure against his uh, calling and his responsibility for the people of God. And uh, on his face, he gets this revelation and he, he goes to the people who are afraid and he says, do not fear what, what you're fearing. Let the Lord, who is great and terrible, be your fear. And then fight for your sons and your daughters and your children and your wives, and your homes. Uh, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, majestic in holiness, terrible, terrible in glorious deeds? What kind of uh, hell's public relations advertising uh, machinery has to work? Men, they, they must work overnight every night, all day, every day, to, to pump out the, the stupid mindset that God, the subject of God, and anything related to God, is some kind of a, a limp-wristed, sissified, pink thing that um, you know men don't like church because it's over-feminized. Well, that's true. Church is over-feminized. And and uh, men don't like church a lot of times because it's it's over feminized. But where did we where did we get the idea that the service of God is is something we can feminize? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, majestic in holiness, terrifying in glorious deeds? Exodus chapter 19, verses 9 through 25. I want to quote here a statement from these verses uh, from A.W. Tozer. It's of great significance, he says, that in Proverbs 9, verse 10, we have the word for God's holiness, the holy, written in the abstract rather than as the holy one, etc., in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 3, it is also written, the holy, though some translations in other places translate it, holy one. This abstract use of the holy rather than the holy one is seeking to describe something beyond language's ability to describe. Scripture will speak of all sorts of holy things, holy ground, holy hill, holy place, holy people, etc. And when it does translate holy one, it is accurate to do so. 
But there must be a reason translators sometimes find the use of the term holy one as somehow inadequate in expressing the Hebrew text. It seems to them far wiser to speak of, quote, the holy, period. The Greek New Testament attempts the same emphasis by adding the definite object, thing, and sometimes it is translated the holy thing or the awful thing. There's that word, terrible. Same thing has happened with the word awful. Oh, man, it was awful. The, the, the language has ruined the word. If you look at an older dictionary for the meaning of the word awful, it would be described as that which is terrible, dreadful, causing trembling, awakening awe, or worship. You get that? Terrible, dreadful, causing trembling, awakening awe, or worship. Look today in a dictionary printed in the last 30, 40 years, and it would most likely say unpleasant, disappointing, below expectation, a frustration of of our uh, expectations. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 16 through 21. Don't be stiff-necked, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great and mighty and terrible God who has no regard for persons and cannot be bribed. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger. You shall fear the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, and to him shall you cleave and swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God that has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. When one considers even a slight part of the handiwork of God, which only grants the tiniest glimpse of what he's like, It's amazing to think that somehow the enemy of man's soul has been able to mass-produce a PR campaign which seeks to equate God, the awful one, the holy, with weakness, silliness, or boredom. This says far more about our stupidity than it ever says about the real God. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, What will all of our chatter amount to when the anesthetic fog we call nature or the real world fades away and that presence in which you have always stood becomes palpable, immediate, and unavoidable? It's that palpable, immediate, and unavoidable presence that I have on a few occasions encountered at least a shadow of it. In worship services that I remember from from my early Christian experience. Listen, don't think for some for one minute I'm I'm uh reveling in uh sentimental memories of the good old days. Oh, I wish we could go back to the days when so-and-so-and-so-and-so. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I don't want to go backwards to anything. What I'm talking about is the desperate, desperate need for the body of Christ, corporately, which has to happen individually for it to happen corporately, but for us individually and hopefully then corporately, to begin to focus on the holiness of God in a way that will cause us, when we come into a worship service, to so humble our hearts in the presence of the one that we have gathered to worship that the presence of the holy 
might begin to manifest itself upon us, to us, and then hopefully through us to a world that is insane. You know, there's a kind of metal that can go into the fire and it can actually take on the nature of fire so that when you pull it out, it is fire itself. <clears throat> and God uses metaphor and simile and parable to try to communicate to us his, his divine nature. One of the most often used ones of those metaphors <clears throat> is fire. The fiery, uh, the, the burning bush, the, the fire on Sinai, uh, the, the, all the other references. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews says. Exodus 20, verse 18 through 20, all the people saw the thunderings and lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking when the people saw. They retreated and stood at a distance and they said to Moses, speak with us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we'll die. But Moses said to the people, fear not, for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you won't sin. This, this fire of the presence of God that can take a people who are so afraid of God that they, they want the preacher to talk to them about God, but they don't want God to speak to them, can actually become a people who press into the presence and who long for the presence and who ask God to help them become more able to, to dwell in, as Isaiah chapter 4 says, who, who among you can dwell in the eternal burnings? That's got nothing to do with hell. I've heard people preach that verse as, as a, that's, not what, that's what, not what that's talking about. Who can dwell with the eternal fire is talking about who can be in the presence of the of the uncreated light who can who can uh, who can bear for their naked spirit to stand in the presence of the uncreated beam when it shines on them well there is a way there is a way there is a way that you can you can draw into that holy presence there's a there's an offering and a sacrifice poured out on the mercy seat before the throne of God that has prepared the way for us to see and dwell and look upon the holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night may dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. But see, when you lose the holiness of God, then you don't preach the cross anymore. And you don't preach the blood. And sin is not even an issue. It's just a flippant subject, uh, that, that uh, a misunderstanding of grace uh, is used to, to cover. Uh, and, and so there's no understanding that God's intention is not to just put a Band-Aid on our sin and, quote, cover it. No, he intends to transform us back into, uh, not even back into, but into what he originally intended and beyond. I mean, he's not just taking us back to the garden. He's taking us forward to the, uh, to the New Jerusalem. So we don't go back to sinless innocence. We go forward into sinless perfection, bought by the shed blood and then brought into full reality by union with the fire. And so uh, on the day of Pentecost, when the, when the Holy Spirit came and filled all of the people of God, there was that the tongues of fire on their head signifying that they've now become the temple 
and uh, see, we know all these things in metaphor, and we we've heard sermons about them, and we maybe can even quote them, but we're, we've reached the point in history where folks. We've got to go beyond just Sunday school knowledge of some of these things and begin to embrace them and trust that the Holy Spirit will embrace us and take us into them. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I'm born again. I've got my legal grace ticket that covers my sins. I'm so grateful that my sins are forgiven. I'm grateful your sins are forgiven too, but is that where you want to stay? Uh, Hebrews 6 says, let us go on beyond the, the, the foundation. Let us, let us go beyond the, 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 the basic steps of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, uh, baptisms. Uh, he says, let us go beyond that on to maturity. And part of that going on to maturity, the chief part of going on to maturity, has to do with being able to dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. But we don't, we don't understand. We want the love of God, and I'm thankful for the love of God. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the love of God. But, folks, it's the holiness of God that makes the love of God so precious. You have a vision of the holiness of God and you don't you just you just want to die. You want to cover your hand hands over your head and fall on your face and and just tremble in that presence and then you find that that same presence that makes you tremble reaches out touches you and says, don't be afraid, Clay, it's me. You know? But see, we, we, don't want, we don't want the trembling part. We want all the love and familiarity. And our familiarity with God, which is a true message. I mean, we are invited in. We, we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. Yes, we can. But just because we can, does that mean that we throw off all uh, sensitivity to the, to the awesome, holy, terrifying, dreadful, fearsome presence that we're approaching? See, true, true spirituality doesn't either or between holy and love. It doesn't choose between, well, holiness. That's, I mean, I've, some people seem to think, yeah, holiness is Old Testament legalism and, and love is New Testament grace. That's just a travesty. And, and, and it's the reason why we have no holy strength in our private lives. We have no godly demonstration of Christ in our public Christian fellowships and we therefore have no prophetic influence in the world. The church for the most part, I say for the most part, I know there's, there's exceptions. The church for the most part is, uh, I don't know what it is. I, I, I really don't. I mean, it, is it a, a lecture? Is it a, 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 a classroom? Is it a rock and roll concert? Uh, is it a smoke and light show? Is it a self-help a psychology program? Is it a marriage counseling uh, uh, episode with a psychologist who calls himself a pastor? I'm not... For heaven's sakes, you all know me. I'm not putting down on good psychology and good theology and pastoral care, all that. But but when is the last time you walked into a church service and trembled? When's the last time the music, the, the lyrics, again, I'm not talking about style. 
when's the last time the lyrics of what you were singing brought you to tears and made you want to go to your knees and made you want to hold your hands up to the face of God and give yourself to him again fresh I, I, you know, I keep saying it over and over and I'm sorry forgive me for not really caring if you forgive me but most of the worship music of our present culture is just a, a manifestation of our poverty-stricken souls. Lyrically, there's no reflection. There's, see, there's nothing of the fire. It, it, the, the metal that produces the sword should have the nature of the sword, of the fire in the sword. They, they should be able to dwell together in the flame. But this is why Paul says, you know, so much of our works will be burned up on the day of judgment. Uh, a lot of our works will, because they weren't born in fire, they can't carry the character of fire, so they can't uh, survive the test of fire so on the day of judgment, they will not be able to endure the consuming fire. But that which can endure the consuming fire is that which was born in the fire and took on the nature of the fire. See? And so, uh, I don't know what it will take. I, I don't really know what it will take. I, I will tell you this. I walked into chapel in Kira's little school that she attends. I was invited to speak in their chapel last year. And I, I walked in, and there was four or five students praying. And uh, I got down near the altar and was praying too. And I, I found myself not wanting to get up off my knees. And then uh, as the student body came in, they went to their knees. And uh, what should have been a 45-minute long chapel service turned into a three-hour prayer time. Nobody spoke. I sure didn't speak. I didn't want to say a word. I had nothing to say. I stayed right there on the floor while all the other students were on the floor. People were weeping. Students were crying. I know how overly emotional teenage and middle school age kids can be manipulated into uh, feeling. You know, if you use the right music or tell the right story with the right break in your voice, you can get an altar full of middle school age kids. And I'm, I'm not making fun of that. The Holy Spirit can use that in spite of how manipulative it may be at times. But I'll tell you, there was no manipulation of these kids. In fact, many of these kids had never had, any, as far as I know, any experience with God on that level. The presence of God was in the sanctuary. And when kids came in, they walked into that presence. And when they did, they were shaken. And they, they went to their knees. Now, there was a, a, a part of the student body that didn't know what was going on. They, they thought it thundered. Uh, they, they didn't know anything. They just went and sat in the back and waited for this boring stuff to get over with. But a, a good third, maybe, maybe two-thirds of the student body was on their knees. And... Uh, there was repentance and there was dealings of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people. When's the last time you had a, a church service where the Holy Spirit dealt with sin, where people were moved on, not by having been beaten up by a hellfire damnation sermon. No, forget hellfire. What about heaven fire? What if the fire of the, the Shekinah of God, the, the heavy, the kavod of God, the glory of God, the presence of God, 
the flame of God is is set loose because the hearts of the people are starving to soar towards uncreated light and yet in that hunger to soar toward the Lord their their hearts are laid open and bare by the the eternal light through the eternal love and the cross is revealed for what it is and the blood the precious blood that covers the mercy seat the, the, the law of God is inside the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. But the law of God cannot speak nearly so clearly as the blood which is poured on top of the, um, of the Ark of the Covenant. And then on, on, on the Ark, the, the blood cries out from the mercy seat. That there's something greater than than the power of the law. That doesn't dishonor the law, fulfills it, supersedes the penalty, and brings about a transformation so that you become free of of the penalty of the law and then free from from the sin itself that uh, made the law speak against you. The Spirit of God dwells in in you and is purging out of you everything that the law would have convicted you for. Am I making any sense? Are you getting this? Can you begin to cry out for this? Maybe some of you don't have a church to go to. I mean, I know you do the best you can and you go where you can and you serve the best you can. But I know some of you don't even have a congregation you can go to. You live in a part of the country where most of the church is apostate. And you you try to go. But do this at home. Do this alone with the Lord. Begin to cry out for for this kind of reality to come. You know, I, I, I don't really care if, if you understand justification by faith legally. How many manifest demonstrations of the presence of God have been cut short and negated and aborted because we were more interested in proving to God our legal standing with him than we were crying out for the real God to come and manifest himself in whatever way he wants to and do with us whatever he wants to at whatever cost to us it takes. You know, I'm, I'm a little, I'm not a little, I'm a lot, I'm a lot concerned about the number of believers who have a legal relationship with God. They can prove it. They got the chapter and the verse to prove it. They can flip over there as quick as any Pharisee and tell you the chapter and verse. And I hear the voice of the Son of God who died for us and loves us. I hear him crying out to us just like he did to the Pharisees of his, of his day. Search the scriptures. In them you think you have life, but they point to me and you will not come to me that you might have life. And so you have people coming to you sometimes like I've had come to me and say, you know, I'm just disappointed with my marriage. I I just need to know, you know, I, I know that I'm justified by faith. I know that my sins are forgiven legally. If I leave my wife for another woman, uh, where do you think I'll stand? I mean, I, you know, what, what, what am I supposed to say to that? Thankfully, I've only had that conversation three or four times in my whole life. That's three or four times too many. Do I have the legal documents in place to give me permission to act in opposition to love? Show me, show me that I have that security. Now, so that's kind of blatant. Surely that hadn't happened very often. No, that hadn't happened very often. But that attitude happens every day and is so common in the life of many believers, quote-unquote, that it makes you wonder what exactly it is they believe 
in as believers. What is it they believe? I'm afraid what they believe is just what the Pharisees believed that Jesus was referring to in John 5.39. They think, well, they've searched the scriptures and they've done all the due diligence necessary to cross the T's and dot the I's and satisfy the bureaucracy of heaven uh, by recording in the bureaucracy of heaven their legal standing justified by faith, saved by grace. It's all in place, all the right phrases, all the true, and they're true doctrines. I'm not saying a word against the doctrines. I'm saying once the doctrines are in place, where are you in your relationship to the holy? Can you dwell in eternal burnings? Can you get near the fire and feel the warmth of its invitation? Or the closer you get to it, will will you feel more like you're in hell? May this song of clays be our closing prayer. Burn, holy fire, cleanse my desires. Search me inside, let nothing hide. Burn, holy flame, until the same heart that's in you is burning in me. Burn all that's dark, selfish, and cold. Soften my heart, possess my soul. Burn, holy flame, until the same heart that's in you is burning in me. Let the holy fire burn in each one of us, O Lord. Amen. Amen.